Greetings, salutations, and welcome to Retrek on Krypton Radio, and of course, available on your podcatcher of choice. What you're about to hear here is our first episode, which was recorded as part of Squeefest, a 24-hour podcast festival hosted by our very own Captain Squee, and in aid of the Dogs for Good charity, which you can still donate to. As such, it's a little bit different to one of our standard episodes. You may notice that there's a few occasions where we've had to remove the more colourful metaphors. Normal service will, of course, be resumed next week, but we hope you enjoy listening to this. two-hour mission this morning then is to discuss each and every star trek film which without the benefit of a slingshot around the sun may well prove to be a no-win scenario Could but not unlike captain kirk we don't like to lose <laughs> we'll begin then back in the 70s but for our purposes the year is 2273 kirk has been promoted to admiral spock is searching for himself and bones Seems to be a medallion man. It's Star Trek The Motion Picture. <laughs> All scarily true. What are our initial thoughts on the motion picture before we get too too deep into it? What's our first impressions of the film? Uh, I'm gonna put it straight out there. I think it's actually the best pure Star Trek movie that has been made. Whoa, bold statement. <laughs> If you look at it, it's 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 purely Star Trek. Star Trek's not about massive space battles and everything. It's about seeking out new life, new civilizations, and it's all that. It's finding peace, and they do that. I think that's a, a very fair point. You know, um, it's one of the few. I'm not saying it's I... the best. Ah. I'm not saying it's the best movie, but I'm saying it is the best. Star Trek story of all of them. Interesting. Okay. I can listen to an argument for that. I was thinking re-watching these films recently that you do have a very good point because, you, as you say, Star Trek's not usually about big battles and it's not usually about big villains. What Star Trek tends to be on television is there is a problem or a dilemma that needs to be overcome. And that's what happens within your 45 minutes. And you're absolutely right that the motion picture is one of the very few films in this run where it is a problem rather than an enemy to be defeated. I mean, for me, I appreciate that what people... I mean, it seems to be it's people who are a fan of uh, Space Odyssey, which it certainly seems to have borrowed some stuff from. 
It's people who like a Space Odyssey, who, which this film very heavily seems to be influenced by, seem to love this and want to defend these big, long panning shots. And I do get the beauty of some shots, and there's some shots of the Enterprise you never see again or before. And there's some oh. wonderful things there. But I don't need... You mentioned 45 minutes, the usual running time of a Star Trek episode. I don't need 45 minutes of seeing Vija going, we're going through Vija, going through a bit more of Vija. A little bit of Vija left. Um, the there's more Vija now. It's a better movie with 20 minutes cut. And 20 minutes of going through Vija. Interesting. Yeah, it, it's 20 minutes cut from the movie. Yeah. But we've have got you guys... fast forward now and you've got to skip that. Have you guys watched the director's cut that was... It was released on DVD yeah. a few years ago. I think it, about 2002 or something it was done by the director. Because that one, um, it's not that much shorter overall. But I was reading up on it and the director made lots of little tweaks and trims to scenes and used alternative cuts and things like that. And it does really improve the pace. It, it doesn't make well, it a fast film by any means, but um, <laughs> it's less slow. Well, well, when the movie was released, it was running behind time. So they didn't have time to edit it fully. So they just left everything in. Yeah, that, that that's I, why I it's so long. And interestingly enough, directors don't usually spent, do that. Hmm. I always got the impression they spent a hell of a lot of money on that new model of the Enterprise and were like, we are going to show this model. Oh, we're going to show the poop out of this model. I'm not being funny. I build models and I've got an Enterprise that I'm planning to do in the next year or so. So I love the fact that we've got all them shots because it gives some lovely detail to get it accurate. <laughs> So the director was forward-thinking for modelers in the future. If only they had one of your kids on radar, Elliot, you wouldn't have that problem with finding out what that bit is. (laughs) I don't think anybody knows what it is. Wow. Like, if if you're in any doubt that we're going to go deep dive into geek culture here (laughs) in the Star Trek movies, a case on radar where you want to find the bit for your model where that goes, that's pretty in as a reference. I know where it goes, but it's lit up and no one knows what its purpose is. It's facing the wrong way to be a sensor or a deflector. My dude, it makes no sense. It is, and that's all that matters. The door, because the door, because the stole ships from the trade. Okay, well, shall we go back to the motion picture for now? Well, just a second. We've got a, a message from Shared Universe on the chat, which is 15 minutes of Enterprise glory shots. Pretty much, yeah. And 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 a hundred minutes of going through the bloody feature, and then just when you think something's going to happen, and they leave space dock and they go into warp, we go into a slow motion sequence when they're in that wormhole, and everything's well. It's just what it's just what that the movie was just moving along so fast. It's just what it needed a slow motion. Absolutely, they needed to bring it back so we could we could ponder things for a little bit longer. And there's yeah yeah we need some more time to think in this movie. Jeez, slow it down, guys. I mean, yeah. there's there's two bits which kind of like are at the beginning which show you how um sort of like it's like this movie's kind of almost schizophrenic because it has this wonderful stuff of Spock on Vulcan and deciding not to take the Colnar, and uh, that's a wonderful scene. I love it. And then there's this back scene uh pardon me but i might swear uh there's a back scene where you've got um there's no watershed on the web 
Exactly. Kirk gets <laughs> on the web. All warriors are cold warriors. They've got on the on the um, on the ship when uh, Kirk beams uh, bones up, and he's there, and he just just oh my god! I know Shannon likes to chew the scenery, but he's like going, "We need you, bones." I need you! Like, you, oh, Jesus Christ, what the hell? I think Bones agrees to come along just to stop him. It's like, f***s sake, okay, I'll come. I didn't know you felt that It's a medallion man look has done its business, hasn't it, on Kirk? Yeah. It's so weird as well, because Bones is like, they drafted me. They drafted me. It's like, can Starfleet draft people? Is this a thing now? And what the hell was Bones doing when he was drafted? Disco, That's he was doing disco. <laughs> It was. It was staying alive. <laughs> I'm willing to bet there must be a novel of what Bones was doing before Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Somebody must have written. If there it, wasn't, there needs not. to be Bones: The Disco Years. And looking at the production side of this film, the director of it, so they're going in. And like you say, you know, there's an influence of 2001 A Space Odyssey there. Star Wars has just done really big business. Close Encounters is really popular. Yeah. So who shall we get to direct it? Let's get the man who directed The Sound of Music and West Side Story. <laughs> <laughs> and like... I mean, he's got a bit of form. He also did um, The Day the Earth Stood Still. So he's got a bit of sci-fi in there. In all fairness. I just like... want to put this out there. Go on. The costume designer had just come off doing the Bing Crosby um, specials. Really? Well, yeah. I, I mean, costume... that... <laughs> Robert Fletcher. Me, because I wasn't aware there was a costume designer on this film. <laughs> yeah, just everyone came in yeah, their pyjamas. Because the, the costumes... Uh... He actually... Well, if you look at the costumes, the production for the costumes started in 1977. Space 1999 had just finished. And if you look at... The motion picture in Space 1999 costumes, you can see how similar they are. Robert Fletcher has got his whole influence from Space 1999. It may well have done. I mean, the, the problem for me with the uniforms is the colour palette is so washed out. Like, oh, yeah. You have, you have sort of the medical sciences blue, but it's such a washed out blue. And then well, there is well, kind we of a yellow, small... but it's a washed-out yellow. It's well, they were getting away from the bright colours, like when Star Trek was first done. Well, if you look at uh, the cage, the costumes are a lot duller, yeah, and the true. away kit actually looks very much like um, the first Contact or DS9 uniform. Well, that's guys, true, guys, actually, yeah. guys. I mean, but, it's... Then when, but then when they went to full production, CBS had literally went, "No, we want more colour, more colour. We've just spent." $100 million on colour TV, which translates to just short of a billion dollars nowadays. And they just wanted masses and masses of colour. And that's why the uniforms were so bright in TOS. A lot of the Star Trek uniforms look kind of like pyjamas. These are the most pyjama-like you're going to get. And uh, when you said about the director, given that he was coming from all these musicals and stuff, I mean, he really did... Maybe that's why he really wanted to prove himself. That's why he's going, it's like, right... They like long space shots. Well, we're going to give them them and some. And just he just went to town like he was trying to prove something with this, maybe. And uh, I, I love the comment from Indie Mac user on the board saying, my friend Ben, uh, you're not selling this one to me. And we're saying this because we love it. Yeah, we would exactly. only beat up on something this bad because we love it. <laughs> <laughs> 
we're allowed to say these things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> other people are not. Yeah. Maybe it was like like you say with the director, like he's just come from all these musicals. Maybe all his energy had been spent on the musicals and he just needed a nice break and that's why we get the pace of this film. It also had a very kind of troubled history. Like it started off as it was going to be a TV show, then it was going to be a film, then it was going to be a TV show again. Yeah, it was the Fable Phase 2, wasn't it? They did make some Phase 2 episodes, fan films, uh, around 2007, yeah. Right, before they... Incidentally, Robert Fletcher was the costume designer on that as well. (laughs) Fair enough. Did he just use the same ones, or did he do something a bit different? Uh, I'm not sure. I've not watched it. Well, interestingly enough, there's some of the episodes which they wrote for Phase 2, which literally became next-gen scripts, uh, very loosely repurposed. Some done better than others. Some, they just literally go, ah, we'll just get everyone who's a a next-gen character doing these things. Um, they don't seem in keeping with the character. Doesn't matter. Yeah, they just kind of changed, did a, what is it, a search and replace, change coach to Picard. Yeah. And that'll be that. Yeah, it was that season four, Devil's Due or something. And um, it's yeah, got that's... Picard acting very, very Kirkish in that film. Devil's Due? I thought that one was, oh, I don't remember that being particularly Kirkish. Yeah, he kind of, the way he kind of gets in a bit of a sassy argument with the, the devil woman at the end, I thought was quite kirky. Because the one I was thinking was The Naked Now, which is uh, uh, an oh, update of The Naked Time. Well, The Naked Now is just a remake of TOS episode, isn't it? Well, the exactly, but it was meant to be a um, The Voyage Continues one, a phase two oh, one. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, that, that would make Was that going to be sort of a diehard situation, like how can the same happens the same guy twice i guess so i mean it must be because it just is the same again absolutely except this time there's wesley crusher Uh, (laughs) thank goodness but the i think the biggest victim of star trek the motion picture is uh is it david guaro or guarox the guy who he was originally cast as the vulcan for the the phase two when Leonard Nimoy wasn't going to return. So he was going to be pretty much the second lead in this Phase 2 TV show. But then, Leonard, when it gets changed to a film, Leonard Nimoy thinks, oh, actually, I'll come back. So they relegate him to playing the guy on the space station at the very start of the film who gets sucked up by Vija. And that's it. It's like, oh, poor guy. Could have been worse. He could have been one of the guys who got uh, transporter mangled. It could have been, yeah, who you don't even see. See, that... I don't know whether this is intentional, but we can give the film the benefit of the doubt, and maybe it is. If you look at the early parts of the film, all the problems they have are from technology. A transporter goes wrong and kills someone. The warp drives go wrong and throw them into a wormhole. So does this tie in with the idea that Vija's an artificial intelligence and the true enemy's technology... Or am I giving it a bit too much of the benefit of the doubt there? Uh, I'd say, considering this movie needs all the benefit of the doubt it could get, we'll get it. <laughs> and by the way, by the way, I, I am writing on this film, and I will. But uh, I will say on Elliot's point, there is some beautiful plot ideas in there. So the whole idea of Spock not taking up the uh, call to, to give up any traces of non-logic and take the colonel the idea of uh, 
of Kirk realising he made a mistake by taking this job at Starfleet and taking himself away from the ship. And the whole idea of Vija being Voyager, which has gone off into space, just become this life form. There are some wonderful ideas, just not some wonderful pacing. No, that's true. Yeah. And though the Vija Voyager thing was kind of done in that TOS episode, The Changeling, with the, is it called the Nomad Probe in that one? Which is pretty yeah. much the same story, showing you can do this in 50 minutes if you really try. But um, I do take your point. I think there are, tying into what Elliot said, there are some good Star Trek ideas in inverted commas. It's all about that intangible, what is it that makes us human and what makes humans fundamentally great. And that's how Vija ultimately, that's how the problem's solved at the end is by the infusion yeah. of humanity. That's the theme we see again and again in sci-fi, like... Um, well, you'll know this, we, Doctor Who touches on this a lot. The Doctor's always a, a staunch defender of humanity being something intangibly great. And that's something I think we is an idea shared by Star Trek, and we see that in this film. But, yeah, it could have been all done a little bit quicker, I think. Well, they, 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 that's a very good point you bring up on the Doctor Who riddle. Like in Doctor Who, it's so much better when it's done a little bit more subtly. So all those uh, morals are there, all that kind of wanting good to win the day. And uh, someone, you know, in, in Doctor Who it's a person, but in Star Trek it's a crew who believe in ideals better than our, we always live up to in life. But once we aspire to, and that's great. But uh, sometimes, as with Doctor Who, they hit too much on the nose and it just becomes sickly and insipid. And I think it's better when they just, it's there, but they don't have to nail it in much like they did in RTD's, Rossley Davies era in Doctor yeah. Who. And sometimes in Star Trek, they just yeah, just make it a little bit yeah. too insipid. I think in this film, though, I think they walk that line quite well. Yeah. You have at the end, Vija basically needs a human because it needs to think of ideas that extend beyond logic. But... Having said that, I think this film was obviously made in 79. And what they're getting at here is Vija can't comprehend the idea of alternate universes and that's why it needs a human. Whereas sitting here in 2018, I think most scientists agree that multiple universes is pretty legit. And, you know, you'd have thought Vija would have been, would have been okay with that, just using its logic. But... That's probably more a reflection of how our approaches to science changes over the years rather than anything yeah. that's necessarily at fault with the script. I mean, I'm very forgiving in that kind of thing because it's like, as long yeah. as it's working with our uh, best understanding of the day, that's all it can really do. You, know, oh, you can't expect it to be yeah. Nostradamus on you know, how uh, scientific views are going to change over the years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think generally Star Trek does pretty well with its the way it predicts the way things are going to go. I think it's a bit, as you say, a bit churlish to pick it up on things like that. Well, I mean, as we'll pick up when we get to the next film. We've already got technology and something's gone in Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, well, as we'll pick up on when we get into the next film, um, there are perhaps uh, sometimes when they don't look far enough ahead with dates, maybe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, before we do move on to the next film, then the last thing... I want to touch on with this film is 
What's with the caption at the end? The human adventure is just beginning. Uh, it's basically saying we want sequels. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's the yeah, it's like you... what the it's like how you see Iron Man will return in so and so movie or so and so returning so and so movie to be continued. I or how Marvel just... does the little flashbacks of the next movie. I in, think it's just in the a credit. human adventure. It's a little bit it's an odd phrase, I thought. But yeah, I mean I've got no no huge objection to it, but I just find it an odd an odd caption. Well, I mean it's I, I think the shared... do a lot. <laughs> well, I think I'll 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 give the last word for myself to the shared universe who's written uh, shared universe radio who's written on the chat. Subtlety always was the triple with Trek. <laughs> that gets That's one of these. <laughs> that could be a t-shirt, actually. It should get on that. Well, there you we go. could have Subtlety is always the triple with Trek t-shirts. I could see that. Or a car bumper sticker. That could be the slogan of Retrek if we do this. Yeah. <laughs> so shall we move? <laughs> Has anyone got anything else on the motion picture before we move on? No, I think we've summed it up. No, we better go before we take as long on it as, as they did in the film. <laughs> we'll do a director's cut one day. <laughs> we move on then. The year is 2285. Kirk is feeling a little bit old. Spock is a captain and Khan is very angry. It's Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Now, I'm guessing without previously speaking to you guys about this i'm guessing this one's held in a little bit higher esteem than the last one uh, maybe not <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah quite a lot my cosplay is based on this movie i mean well oh true. god let's let's start right there just the uniforms alone just don't we feel better just looking at especially uh this crew in by the movie time where at least Kirk and Scotty certainly need the help with a more flattering uniform, and they get it. <laughs> Absolutely. These yeah. uniforms were also designed by Robert Fletcher. It, clearly, somebody had a word with him and said, Right, look, if you want to work on this film, we're going to need to see something a little bit better. So. Psst, 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 Fletcher, Fletcher, uh, enough with the pajamas. Let's, let's give him something which sucks the guts in. Something which hides the girdle for, for, for Kirk and Scotty. He's moving through the day. The first film is the pyjamas. The second film is what you wear during the day. If he'd have done the costumes for the next gen or something, that would have been you like you going out on a Friday night clothes. They'd have one of those little night hats from well, uh, Scrooge. Well, you've been searching for Spock. They're there all in the caches on there. There you go. And in purely coincidence, Robert Fletcher did the, uni did the costumes for the search for Spock. There you go. So that's it. He's gone from... <laughs> What you wear when you're asleep, what you wear when you're at work, to what you wear when you're off duty. So that's it. We've cracked what was going on with him. But it's, I mean, it really is, though. The All the other films are kind of these spandexy kind of thing. Like, all the uniforms for Star Trek, just, uh, you know, the velour back in the day. But they were all sort of built for people who were very in trim, shall we say. Yes. And yes. these uniforms, anyone could wear them. Like... I lost some weight over the last year, and so probably I could, well, maybe in a few more pounds, I can maybe get away with an original <laughs> series. But 
uh, certainly next generation is a tough wear for anyone. Anyone can wear these beautiful red babies. They look amazing. I they, had to. And they, yeah, and they, <laughs> they look serious as well. They look like it's taking the material a bit more seriously when you see these uniforms somehow. A lot of that came from, from my understanding, came from the director, Nicholas Meyer, who wanted to really kind of play up the sort of relationship between Starfleet and the modern Navy. So he wanted a sort of Navy nautical theme and that came through in the uniforms and quite strongly, I think, in the music in this film. I mean, someone pointed out on, um, again, I'm going to shout out another fantastic uh, podcast. And this is the um, oh, Star Trek one, uh, Star Trek Next Conversation with Matt Mara and Andrew Spender. Yeah. And uh, they were discussing this on yesterday's Enterprise, and they were saying how this was the longest-serving uniform in Trek law. So it lasted like 75, 80 years, something like this, because yeah. it goes all the way through these movies, yeah. right into the early, just before the next generation, they were t retired, basically. So when you see the Enterprise uh, C coming through time in yesterday's Enterprise, they're still wearing these uniforms. Uh, they yeah, got rid I of the white bit, but that's about it. Haven't they got rid of like the the white turtleneck yeah, bit the white in yesterday's gone. Enterprise? But but other than that, it is exactly the same. You're right. Yeah. And clearly, it was a really good design. Yeah. But apparently, around the twenty um, fourth century, they lost a lot of weight as a species, humanity. So they started wearing the yeah. uh, more form fitting outfits. Yeah, we, we have eliminated obesity. Now we can get the uniforms we've always wanted. <laughs> A middle-aged cruise. Well, speaking of middle-aged cruise, that really is kind of the theme of this film, isn't it? Well, um, actually, may yeah, I just... Sorry, just very quickly, and then I'll, I'll hand it off to you guys, but you kind of realise, watching these films back, they're sort of all about them getting old. Like, you know, at the yeah. beginning... It's kind of Kirk, what, in his late 40s? Maybe? Yeah. The, <clears throat> and he's facing, he's facing kind of like not being as young as he used to be, but still having a lot of life left in him and regretting kind of stepping up to Admiral as early as he did. Then in this one, he's really feeling his years. And then as it gets on, the more poignant and the more poignant it is to the point where they're retiring and they're coming back for one last mission. And I like that kind of arc. It works. It it could so easily seem like they're treading the same ground, but they make it different each time. Yeah, it's. I think one of the things I found when I was uh, doing a bit of research for this podcast was the timing of these films is a little bit weird. Like, according to Memory Alpha and the Star Trek Encyclopedia, the motion picture is set in 2273, so that puts it about four years after the end of the original series. Whereas this one is set in 2285. So if that timeline is correct, we have a fairly big jump between the original, uh, between the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan, which I don't think as a viewer you get that, whether it was intended or not. I, I don't think necessarily it comes across, but and that's plus, apparently what they were going for. Plus they don't look suitably older for that gap. No, I don't think they do. I think... The problem was they looked suitably older in the motion picture, but they pretended that they weren't. And then they've kind of let the timeline catch it up in the next oh, one. So it's a bit retconning. It, yeah, it is. But apparently that's what they were going for. 
as I say, I don't think it comes across. I always took Wrath of Khan to happen not too long after the motion picture. Yeah. Um, but apparently not. Apparently there was a lot that happened in between, but oh, maybe I mean, it was just yeah, that, that shot of the Enterprise. Well, it does actually make sense because they're doing a new crew for it with the training missions out there. They're bringing the yeah. new crew in. Actually, so it does make sense. Yeah. There's been that big time gap. It does make sense as well. Probably the time they were spent going through Vija took a good year or two. Yeah, that's it. That knocked a couple of years off. Yeah. yeah Scotty, Scotty and Kirk did a fly round of the Enterprise, so that were probably five years. Yeah. And then if it took them as long to disembark at the end, there's your extra seven, and we're up to 2285, so... And we will actually, when we get a bit later on in the films, if we get that far, maybe talk about some of the things that happened in that time... But we'll get there. I think like, James May know what I'm talking to about. Have happened in that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get back to that. We'll go there, yeah. So this one, yeah, you're right. There's this, particularly with Kirk, there's this thing of him feeling extremely old. And apparently he's meant, the director said that the birthday that Kirk's celebrating there is meant to be his 52nd birthday, which we don't think of as old now. So you'd think by 200 years in the future, that'd be... Yeah, that'd be sort of your mid-twenties or something, yeah. but but yeah. Kirk's definitely feeling it in this film. Uh, and he's you, say a that, very... you say that modern science is saying that uh, it's the first generation, uh, well, throughout the West pretty much, where the next generation is predicted to not live as long as the one before. Cause is that right? Well, because we're abusing our bodies, we're... Uh, uh, yeah, you know, such unhealthy diet, so much junk food, so many like you know, um, just to pull something out of the air, high fructose corn syrup being used as opposed to sugar in a lot of sort of sodas and stuff. All this kind of stuff is contributing. Yeah, to us having a very unhealthy lifestyle. So they reckon uh, that, that this is the first, yeah, first predicted wow. dip in life expectancy. So maybe it backs and forths right up until the twenty second century. It goes down, and Kirk's just like, you know, I'm lucky to still be here at fifty two. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think what I like about it is that they allow Kirk to be old, and Shatner plays him as older and acknowledges his age, and does it with a bit of dignity, and it does engage with that. Whereas in the motion picture, they kind of are pretending that they've not aged a day, and uh, in some of the later films, more so the one directed by William Shatner. You've kind of got Kirk acting like he's a spring chicken, and I really like <laughs> that this one does acknowledge that age. It and it gives them, actually are. yeah, it it gives them a bit of gravitas that I think they've earned and they deserve. But it it does give them that sort of level of respectability, and yeah. I think it makes the gap between the series and the films lets these characters breathe a little bit while they're out of the public consciousness and then when we come back to them it does feel like these are people who are worthy of being on the big screen and you know we might touch on that a little bit when we get to the next gen films you know whether it felt ready for the for, for the big screen or not well to, but, to, to yeah. me to me i think the thing is for instance they nail the characters this is the first yeah. uh, well i mean it's the second film but it really nails every character who they are what they're doing, what their drives are. What? You've got uh, Spock. Well, Spock is probably best written than he ever has been, or, you know, at his 
the best yeah. moments from the original series are exemplified here in this movie. So the fact that he, well, Nicholas... he's sorry, I, I will just just one second, sir. So the fact that okay. they've got um, him most, he's got the best balance between his Vulcan side, and he doesn't, you know, it it doesn't shy away from that, but. It's kind of that friendship between him and Kirk doesn't suffer from being like in the original in the first film in the motion picture they kind of lost that rapportee between him and uh, Bones and the the friendship between him and Kirk it's just so cold they made him too kind of Vulcan whereas here it just smooths those edges to let that little human side out in those friendships and those antagonistic relationships between him and Bones it's just so well um, realized. Sorry, go, go. Yeah, I was about to say, the great thing about the Wrath of Khan was what Nicholas Meyer did. He locked himself away and watched all the original series, so he knew how the characters were with each other. They didn't do that for the motion picture. He yeah. also had the actors for the motion picture. Oh, we're on the big screen, and they took themselves a lot more serious. When they got to the Wrath of Khan, there was, no, let's start to have some fun with it. And you can see the difference in it. It's just better written. The guy knows Nicholas Meyer understood the characters. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you do, you do get the sense, you know, these are people who've known each other for a long time. They enjoy each other's company, but they can also yeah. get to work when they need to. So, yeah, it's it's a much warmer film right from the the very start. Yeah. It, it's like, yeah, you know, again, I just can't get over how much Spock knows who he is. It's like he's almost like. He doesn't shy away from the fact that he sees himself as Vulcan, but it's almost like having that twinkle of humanity to him, it's almost like he feels he knows something everyone else doesn't. He's got all that logic stuff, but he's got that little bit of friendship which makes him just that little bit wiser. Yeah, he's very yeah. sort of at peace with himself in this film, which you could argue his journey in the motion picture was from wanting to purge of all emotions to acceptance by the end of the film. So maybe we needed his arc in that film to get where we've got him in this one. But but absolutely, like there's the scenes at the start where he gives him the uh, tale of two cities and everything, and that speaks to a deep friendship between them. Yeah, no, I I, I just loved it. it, uh, And I, I get what you're saying about that first film, but to do that really well, you have to have a few moments by the end of the film where you do see the Spock you want to see the rest of the film. So I don't mind waiting for that Spock through the film if we see it at the end. So it's like, we didn't forget, we haven't ignored who the character is who you've followed throughout the TV show. We were just saving it. That's totally fine, that's totally valid, but they kind of ignored it and they never showed it in the first film. No, I, I agree with you. I wasn't saying it was done well. No, it's a, <laughs> it's, no you argued it very eloquently. and I, I totally see your point there. No, it's but but that's that is the problem with a film like that that it takes fans twenty thirty years to sit there and come up with a justification for it. Whereas <laughs> the Wrath of Khan, forty years, 40, is it forty? No, we go. It's yeah, forty the, years, nearly forty years next year. It will be. Yeah, that's just exposing my terrible maths on a morning. But um, yeah, the Wrath of Khan, I think. It's safe to say is a beloved classic, certainly within Trek fandom, and I would I would argue that Wrath of Khan is one of the films that transcends sort of Star Trek fandom and is just 
generally regarded as a a very good film by most people. Well, Absolutely. Can we uh, just spend a multiple minute, if you will, uh, <laughs> talking about that fantastic performance? Now, something I want to ask you guys, because when I was watching back, and uh, sorry, slight spoilers to a film which comes much later, but when I was watching mm-hmm. uh, the um, Into Darkness with, with Khan uh, re- <sighs> recast as uh, Bendit Cumberbatch, now my argument was Bendit Cumberbatch is a white guy, there is so much which is in the original film which points to an Indian heritage of uh, of Khans. And I get that they haven't they can't cast someone who is of Indian descent because uh, where is it Ricardo Montalban's kind of Hispanic descent? He's Mexican, I Mexican, believe. Sorry. Mexican. Yeah. So excuse my ignorance as well. But I think they at least try to cast towards like, you know, baby steps maybe, but at least towards that and they wrote it as an Indian character. And I think if you look at his look in the original episode he does look Indian. And they captured that look at very least, even if he was not from there exactly. To go True. from that to out and out white guy who's meant to be Khan Union Singh. Uh, mm? Yeah, I think... It should, the, uh, in, in I think defense I like Benedict cast, as an actor. I do. Yeah. But in, I think Into Darkness, if they'd made it, somebody knew... A new character as a baddie, it would have worked fine, but not as Khan. It didn't need to be Khan. It didn't yeah. need to but be, but I, I have less of an issue with that because my my feeling on it is that it's better to get a good actor to do it rather than a bad actor. And um, not that I'm saying Ricardo Montalban's a bad actor. He wasn't. He was very, very good. Um, but one of the things about Into Darkness was my understanding of it was originally it was meant to be Benicio del Toro, um, but he dropped out for whatever reason, and yeah. so Benedict was a relatively late addition to the cast. But you're saying uh, there wasn't another, uh, ideally out and out Indian actor who could have played that role that who, of course, who wouldn't have been there was. Yeah, you know, Costa could have been, but I I don't know the. I didn't get as strongly the the sort of hints to his heritage. I mean, watch I, I didn't feel again. that. Sorry? Watch Space Seed like again. It. I did watch Space Seed again, actually. And you you give me that homework assignment. You don't see that in that. The fact that they well, mentioned that he's a proud Indian warrior, they, they've got his, uh, the uh, yeoman painting his picture and it's all... Yes, there's the she paints the picture with the turban and they do say that he's a Sikh. Um, but the yeah, but apart from that, yeah, well, that's only two little bits. <laughs> little uh, bits. I mean, that's his heritage. <laughs> it, no, it is his heritage, and I'm not disputing that. I, I, it's one of those. It doesn't bother me personally, but I can see why people are bothered by it. And it was you know, I'm, I'm not going to argue it. <laughs> it. It was. Yeah, it probably was, but like I say, I would rather a good actor. But going back to yeah, but it didn't it didn't come across as Indian, no, so it wasn't a good all. actor in that role. <laughs> so no, but going back to your point, Elliot, it probably would have been better with a, a different antagonist completely. But anyway, or a that's... different actor. Well, I mean, an I... Indian actor. <laughs> I mean, I completely blame myself for I've I've come accidentally made the wrong point. What I meant to kind of ask Bracely was, 
do you think it's as bad as some people have used the kind of defense if you like that well Ricardo Montalban wasn't actually Indian but I think they did enough to make him look Indian again it's not ideal and I'd, I'd like to think today we would cast someone well we didn't but you know we should have cast an Indian actor whereas I think yeah. they did enough to, to make him appear Indian at the very least again it's not ideal but it's better than, than just casting now and a white guy yeah. yeah it was a lot I, better I think, yeah, I mean, Ricardo Monteblon, whether he appears Indian or not, he certainly doesn't appear Western, whereas Benedict Cumberbatch certainly does. As a tall, thin white guy. Looks like he's walked in from Eton or something. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah, there's you know, there's no question Ricardo Monteblon's better in the role, and um, it was a... A very silly decision, really, because it's such an iconic role to to redo it to any extent. I think the we're missing the important question here. We're getting derailed and all this serious stuff. Whereas the the most important question about Montalban's performance is: Do we think the chest was real or not? I think he was implicitly yeah. said they have his own pecs. Yeah, I, time I'm and time again, and I'm going to believe him. I'm willing to believe it, to be honest, yeah. It, I, I'll go with yes, but I did watch this with my wife who was who took one look at it and said, I can't believe you lot actually debate this. It's definitely a fake jest, so... She's wrong. That's pure Monteblan right there. She may well be. 100% pure grade Monteblan. It is weird because he does look like an old guy from the neck up and the waist down. But then in the middle, you've got this, like, Mr. Universe thing going on. Yeah, pretty much. He trained hard for the role. I'm sure he did. Apparently, it took him a while to get back into the the groove of Khan because he'd been doing Fantasy Island so long. And then he said he went back and watched Space Seed and reconnected with it, so... Which so I'm sure we're all glad he did. Is that why when they're yeah. in the nebula and he's looking for where Kurt might be, that little guy jumps out and goes, The starship! The starship! Yeah. <laughs> that's, again, that, that's, I think that is only in the director's cut again. But Oh, yeah, um, sorry, I forget. You, you can track it down. I'm sure it's out on Blu-ray. Um, so what about the, the starship battles then? Well, can I just very quickly, no. just just to round off what we were talking about, uh, Shared Universe, just, but nah, Cumberbatch is great in the role, colour is irrelevant in the tre- It There's a difference between colour being irrelevant and a character being written as something and then ignoring it, to me. Yes, but that's, that's my you're answer. absolutely right. There you're is. entitled to your opinion. Yeah. Uh, I think Cumberbatch is a great actor, so he acted really well, but it's just miscast. That's that's my opinion, I, but there we go. Sorry, yeah, you, I, I, was I completely well, we'll agree with you. When we go on to Into Darkness, there's some other things about the way they portray Khan that I'd like to talk about. But we're not here to talk about Benedict Cumberbatch yet. Yeah. We're still we're still on the Wrath of Khan. So what do you think to the space battles then? So we said Star Trek's really... not about space battles, but when it does them in this one, it does them pretty well. It does them great. It also gives us the Reliance, which was the first time we saw a different class of starship. Yeah. In Star Trek, which it's was true. really nice to see. You'll know this, Elliot. Is oh. it true that the Reliant was meant to be the other way up and they decided to turn it upside down at the last minute? 
Uh, I've heard that, yes. I do know that it, um, it hasn't got a deflector dish, which was ah, a mistake well. of the modelers. It should have had. Well, it should have done, otherwise it can't go to warp drive without risking destruction. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it will destruct every time it goes into warp, well, which is the same as the Earth class. Well, Kirk should have just used the prefix code to send it into warp, and that would have been job done. <laughs> yeah, there's a little something called showmanship. He appreciates it, even if you don't. No, I, so, I just, it, it's so gloriously done. The space battles look amazing. When they cut up the ship along the side... Oh, yeah. Oh, it's hey. so satisfying. And just uh, when you see Burns victim, Khan, and he's just, he's scrambling, and he's literally, with his last breath, he's spitting hate at him. It's it's glorious. It's Shakespearean in its tone, but the visuals are amazing, so it just it doesn't let you down on any front. So it looks visually spectacular, as well as being uh, dramatically well-written. Yeah, and it holds up as yeah. well, the effects on it. Yeah. Yeah, they do. The, yeah, the, you know, it still looks amazing. Uh, one thing, though, I did notice watching it this time through, and far be it from me to fault anything in the film, but I would have liked, right at the end, when Khan's setting the Genesis device, and he's going, you can't run, Kirk, and all this business. When the Enterprise goes to war... It would have been nice to have seen Khan, seen it go to warp on the screen so that he knew we hadn't beaten Kirk. Because to all intents and purposes, he blows up thinking that he's taken Kirk with him. I don't need to see that. I don't need the balls to be spiked in that way. I think they... they uh, it's enough that he won. <laughs> it is, yeah. But I, I would have liked to have seen Khan know he was defeated. But I suppose... Oh, Khan's dead. You just want to rub his nose in it. You mean... Yeah. No, I want to rub his nose in no. before he dies. Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> yeah, see the, yeah, I think that would have been a nice little scene to see his look of dismay as Gert gets away. Yeah. Or maybe well, it's just, just he's blowing you know, up. He looks at the ship, like, warping away and goes, oh, fuck, and then the ship explodes. <laughs> All right, yeah. He sees it warp away and yeah. he goes, oh, never mind, and he just unplugs the Genesis device <laughs> and it doesn't go off. Because... Who builds a device like that? It's got the three-minute countdown. Can we stop it, David? No. What? Don't build a device like that that can't be stopped. I want to go to the effects again, and I don't know if you realise this, when they show the graphics for how the Genesis device will work, it's the first um, scene that's purely CGI ever in a movie. Yes, no. it, yeah, the first full CGI sequence, yeah. Oh, wow. And it's so good they use it again in three and again in four, which I don't blame them. They probably spent a lot of money on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they will have done back then. And that's, that's it still like stands the... up as a computer It does, sequence. yeah. Is it in Star Trek six and seven they use the same um, Romulan war, uh, Klingon warbird blowing up? Yes, yes, yeah. it is. Yes, that and it, it's, it's very, very noticeable lazy. watching them back to back as well. Don't get me started on Generations because it's a very, very lazy movie. Now we'll get we'll, <laughs> another time, sir. We're not going to get to that today. <laughs> no, I think we can rule out Generations certainly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I think it's got its challenge. But anyway, that's another story. But I, I just like to, of course, just point us towards the, oh my god, this gets me every time when I watch it. The scene where um, Spock does sacrifice himself, 
and it's just everyone oh. is on point. You've got the look on Kirk's face when he wants to just open the door. It doesn't matter. He he must know that he's going to flood the chamber if he does it, but he's not yeah. thinking about that. He's thinking about his friends dying. And you've got that just moment when when it, it's Scotty, Scotty yeah, he's dead already. Oh my God, how... Yeah. Oh, you're not human yeah, if that doesn't get well it done. It's brilliant, Saint. You have little things like when Spock stands up to go to Kirk, he straightens his uniform. Yes. Like he doesn't want to appear shabby in front of his captain yeah. at this point, you know. <laughs> it It's so well done and so graceful. It's, it is a fantastic piece of cinema. And you could have spiked the ball by when, uh, when, um, uh, when Spock does the Vulcan salute. You could have had Kirk doing alongside, but he just puts his fingers by his... Kirk can't do it. Yeah, well, oh, I know yeah. he can't. I know he can't, can't. But it's kind of just this thing. It's somehow, some somehow more human that he just puts his fingers yeah. to his friend's fingers. It, he, he's if he's doing the Vulcan salute, it's a bit too cutesy. It takes you out of it almost for me. Yeah, he's him putting just his fingers to his naturally. friends. Yes, it it feels more natural. It feels more organic, and it's beautiful. It's so well acted as well. Like uh, you know, I know people make fun of Shatner, and I'm sure we will do at some point. But God, yes. in this film, he is outstanding. He is absolutely brilliant. And you know, there was, at, when when they did test screenings, there was actually massive fan outrage at Spock dying, and that's why they had to put in the end of the credits saying Spock will return. Ah, I I just I mean it, it it's the way that scene as well just bleeds into the next one where you've got the uh, funeral. Of course, Scotty, being a Scottish man as they all do, knows the bagpipes. That's just and knows how to play Amazing Grace. I mean, well, I mean, Scots. Yeah. We all know the Scottish are born with that ability. It's just fact. As you see, I'm half Scottish and I can half play the bagpipes. Exactly, you can play. You know, <laughs> the first half of Amazing Grace. I would assume. <laughs> I can play the first half of Amazing Grace very badly. No, actually, it's the first half of Amazing Grace if it's on your mother's side. It's the second half if it's on your father's yeah, side. Yeah, it is, it is on my father's side, so I can play the second half right. of Amazing Grace. I mean, that's just logic. We all know this. Yeah. But uh, but it's just, yeah. <laughs> and it, this is something which uh, 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 legendary director and podcaster Kevin Smith points out. It's when um, Kirk delivers that line. And just breaks slightly, and he goes, "Of all the souls I met in my voyage, his was most human." And just the oh, way he delivers that, no one could deliver it like him. For, it, for me, it's even before he says it, it's the bit where his lip twitches as if he's yeah. going to blub, and you see him bring yeah. himself back under control. You know, it is fantastic acting. Well, you've you've pinpointed it exactly. What Shatner does is much like what Nicolas Cage and other actors of that ilk do. They swing for the fences with every performance. They go large, they go big, they don't go home. And when you do that, you're going to have a lot of things which are going to be hammy, cheesy and big and too big. But you're also going to come up with gold like that. Yeah. yeah. And the, the the very last scene where he's talking to Carol Marcus, she says, how do you feel? And he says, I feel young. And there's a glint in his eye again and there's a smile. It's just, it's brilliant. And unlike, as you said, for the motion picture, it completes Kirk's character arc for that film. And the thing is, uh, it's about the yin-yang of the universe. So for all the great magical acting that um, William Shatner harnesses here, I don't think there's a bomb known as performance throughout this whole film. He then, to make up for it, makes Star Trek V. 
Anyway, uh, <laughs> anyone got anything else on Star Trek 2 or shall we move on? No, well, I mean, we could talk about it all day, but we uh, yeah, we'll, we'll move on for now. We've got two more movies to do. So, oh, sorry, and um, Indie Mac user Ben's just put, perhaps I should have watched these films before listening to this. Spoilers abound. Yeah, sorry, uh, spoilers alert, maybe a bit late. Well, yeah. for I mean, movies which came out in the 80s. I haven't seen any of these movies ever. We might be ruining them slightly yeah. for you. To be fair, there's a spoiler for Is there anybody who's ever seen these three. movies? Yeah, spo- spoilers <laughs> for films which came out in the 80s, yeah. Yeah. So moving on then, the year is still 2285. Savick is a brand new woman, and Spock and Bones have never been closer. It's Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Yeah. It's only set about what a week after the yeah, Wrath of Khan. They've repaired. I think maybe is it a month or so? Because he says we've repaired. No, because the on. Well, no, because they're on route from the Genesis planet to Starbase. But I think the implication is it's taken them a long time to fix the Enterprise in space because Savick and David have managed to get assigned to the Grissom and go back on a mission. Yeah. And isn't there a line line about uh, them having had to spend a long time to limp back home, basically? Yeah, he says we something along the lines of we finally affected our repairs, or so I think it's in that yeah. that captain's uh, log uh, at the start. Yes, yes, Scotty, Scotty says something around about um, I'll have us fully automated by the time we get to space stock and cancers. Oh, you fixed the barn doors after the horses bolted. Yeah, exactly. That that's no good, Scotty. They'll fix it when we get there, son. And I just love the fact that everything's sort of said. Uh, I mean, first of all, you've got the wonderful recap at the beginning, which even though I watched yes. it back to back, I was pleased was there for somehow it just ties it together and it gets you in the right headspace straight away going into the, this film. So even when Scotty and Kirk are joking, there's a sadness behind it. And yeah, there's the, just they hit the is. note perfectly yeah. that they're trying to keep up a brave face, but they're hurting because they've lost their boy. And uh, and you've got well, these kind of... said in the film. Yeah. And they've got these young... Kirk says it costs us our dearest blood. Exactly. Yeah. And you've got this young uh, new crew who are kind of like... They're wanting the heroes welcome and everything and just like they don't get it and they very quickly do get it because they realise they... Because they've said the wrong thing. Yeah, it's yeah. that's a, a good sequence with the young, um, the young ensign, lieutenant, whatever he is. And Kirk sort of says, Heroes welcome, son, is that what you want? And then... He turns away, but then when he gets into the turbo lift, he kind of has a little breakdown, you know, and you see the impact it's having on him. And again, Shatner does some very good acting because he's he's allowing Kirk he's allowing Kirk to be hurt and to be vulnerable, which you don't always see with the character. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's pitch perfect for me. Again, it's sort of like I love the fact that these three films, like uh, two, three, and four, are just can be seen as just one long film, really. Just with different acts. Yeah, it's a, yeah. it's a brilliant story arc. Yeah, it's I think a lot of people tend to view three as the lesser of the of the three, which, to be fair, it probably is because it's sandwiched between two of the very best. But rewatching it this time, I really, really enjoyed three. I mean, I've always thought it was unfair to lump it in with the other odd numbered ones, but. But it, it really yeah, it, held up this time. I thought it was a great film. 
if you've got six hours spare, watching the three back to back, you need the the search for Spock to join it all together. Well, that's the yeah. thing. If you watch uh, two and you watch four, they can work on their own. Two yeah. does need to the three does need to be seen at least with uh, two before it, ideally, and yeah. four after it. So it is, yeah, it is an in between film, but it does have its own story. It just builds on what went before and contributes to what goes after. So it, it it does an important role, but yes, it does stand on the shoulders of the film before. There's nothing wrong with that. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, we're not at can levels of good villain, but Krug, as played by Christopher Lloyd, is a pretty good villain. Oh. I enjoy his character a lot. So yeah, I, think, I think he's got just enough evilness. He's quite happy to shoot his own crew for making a mistake. Yeah. And I, I like... I noticed a lot of ties with Discovery watching this one because Krug talks about, oh, the flag of the Federation will be blowing in the breeze. And he seems to have this worry that the Federation is going to somehow subsume the Klingon way of life. And I was watching this one, and there's elements of this in Six as well. And I thought, it seems like the the writing team of Discovery have watched the films and taken a lot of where the Klingons are at from where they are in these films. Shame they well, didn't take any I of the look at them. I thought the writers of Discovery had watched all of previous Star Trek to know what they were writing about. I'm sure they have, but um, I, I can see a through line from the Discovery Klingons to the Klingons in these films is what I'm... Yeah. The one I'm thing which at. I'm glad yeah, the Discovery people picked up on, though, so the Klingons, they just look too good. What can we do to change that? <laughs> well... I've heard they're going to grow well, season hair, two. though, for season two. Yeah, I have. So. Apparently, yeah, we're going to see more traditional ones because they're different factions. Season two looked very much like the um, Star Trek Six ones. They look a bit like General Chang, certainly, yeah. in how bold they are. Yeah, they've got that look of Star Trek Six. Well, that's fine, but I just, so, I, I think they just, it didn't work for me. The, the new look just didn't work. It didn't feel scary and those uniforms look to oh it looked uh, like some of the board wear i'm not a big fan of the uniforms i have to say in that one um they don't so... look military uh but but just uh, quickly because you were talking about krug can i just bring in yeah. something from one of the featurettes which was on the uh, blu-ray of uh, of three there's a wonderful bit about the um the klingon and there's a guy in there who's the Klingon consultant. He was the one who came up with the Klingon language, oh, worked on, mm. on it from there forth. And uh, apparently there was a wonderful time with him on set whereby he was told, it's like, oh, come on, you can consult on the Klingon. Come on set. You be there. You know, you've given us the language. You help us with it. And then he was going, brilliant. So they want me to contribute. So when there was a scene where they got the Klingon wrong, he goes, uh, sorry, guys, can we stop? Because they got the Klingon wrong. And the director gave him a look, which clearly stated to him that you are not welcome to cut the action. You're here tokenistically. You don't stop. And then uh, there was... So he learned very quickly to, as opposed to doing that, he adapted the language. So he had this little manual he'd written. And then when they made a contraction or they got it wrong, he'd write that into a new rule. So as opposed to a language evolving over years, it was evolving over hours as they did this thing. So um, one of you will die, pick one, became... Uh, they don't say a number. When you don't say a number, it's assumed it's one, for instance. And there was like all these new rules he wrote. And there was this great bit where later on, he he again, he didn't say cut, he didn't say anything, he maybe had a few words with the director, that was it. 
But later on, there was one scene where they got to the end and um, Christopher Lloyd had his hand in, head in his hand. And the director goes, God, what's wrong? That, that was beautiful. You did a great job. Why, why do you look so sad? He goes, I blew the Klingon. I got that line. <laughs> it was to ja, not to ja. You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's just so beautiful. <laughs> so it just shows you how seriously they took writing a Klingon language for this and how seriously Christopher Lloyd took getting it right. He cared about this made-up language. There's so many actors who have just gone, well, it's close enough. No one's going to know. It's not like they're yeah, going to be studying absolutely. in university one day. Be... I don't speak Klingon, but I know there's a lot of people out there who do and they would pick up on them speaking it wrong now. Oh, there are university courses. Now. Yeah, it, if I'd have been yeah. one of the Klingon, like, lesser roles, though, than Christopher Lloyd, you would have wanted to mess with him a bit. You'd be doing it on purpose and just seeing the guy scribbling there in his book, like, oh, he's changed chock-chock to wock I'm like, oh, no, I've got to update it again. Excuse me, look, I know I've sworn a bit, but that kind of language is too far, James. Come on. Well, it, 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 is, it is early. I do apologise. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant to say... I meant to say... Which, for anyone who's listening, that... Oh. I mean, any jacks who just heard the truck chuck I mean, who are offended by that, I'm, I'm just sorry. I am very sorry to our Klingon <laughs> listeners. Okay, we'll, we'll move on. Having we'll move on. having said that, our Romulan listeners will be absolutely howling now after that. <laughs> one, <so>. You showed them. <laughs> so, um, what I really enjoy about this one is there's a, a almost like a sort of heist movie romp kind of feel to it, like when they're going to steal the Enterprise and. You get a horror locking the guy in the cupboard and you get Sulu with that really tall guy and he's, don't call me tiny. Oh, that's yeah, beautiful. That's really, yeah, really, some really, really good funny fun. bits in the movie. Yeah. And yeah. uh, when he goes to Bones and he says, Bones, how many fingers am I holding up? But he's doing the Vulcan salute. And that's not very damn funny, Jim. Yeah, again, you've got the, the banter between the characters is absolutely spot on again in this film. Which I suppose is a real testament to the writing because they're doing it without Spock, which is a difficult thing to do, you know. But I, they still manage, I think, to maintain that feeling of camaraderie and that feeling of fun between them. Like I think Bones actually does play Spock quite well I when he's he being taken yeah. over by the mind meld. Yeah, I mean that scene in the bar with the uh, yeah, what's your poison bar lady? It's just beautiful, wonderfully done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the whole bar sequence is really good. And seen a bar in Star Trek. And that um, guy, did you do you remember Euro Trash? Uh, who's the fashion designer who was in that with the blonde hair? Um, oh God, that's going back. A do bit, you know what I'm talking it? about though? The fashion designer. I know who, you know who you're talking about. Yeah. He'd wear kilts all the time. This fashion designer from the '90s. He worked pretty prominently. The guy who's at the bar who goes, oh, Planet Genesis is now, kind of <laughs> yeah. reminds me of him in a weird way. Like a big-headed yeah. version of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, he's, he's good and he's, he's got like weird eyelashes and yeah, he's Planet Forbidden. <laughs> it's a really, it's an interesting scene to see that on Earth, which, you know, we've not really seen Earth much in Star Trek anyway. But to see sort of the seedy underbelly of it is quite interesting. And yeah. McCoy's, 
whether the, was this before they decided there wasn't any money in the future because McCoy's there's going money I've got and all this business you know where have well, you got this money well, from but... probably because he's uh, dealing with someone from outside the federation so one would assume sense. they could get hold of credits to deal with the rest of the world yeah, or, or maybe can't. maybe it's some sort of clandestine money. It could be gold press latinum for all we know that they're they're actually dealing in that. Exactly. I think yeah. you've got enough of a flange for that. That the Federation doesn't yeah. deal with money, they just share their wealth amongst the Federation uh planets. But outside planets from the Federation do use money, so they have yeah. to sometimes do trade with them. I like to think that Bones has got a few black market deals going on, like selling medical supplies to every planet they go to. <laughs> I'll give you this tricodrazine if you go sell this outside the schools you'll get a load of money from the kids <laughs> apparently they used to have a trade deal between the Federation and uh, the Klingons but they had a Kling exit uh, so they had to stop oh, that <laughs> it probably took a long time for them to negotiate it though yeah, a couple of years, I understand, and they, a lot yeah. of people weren't happy with the deal no. at the end. Still didn't get it quite right. <laughs> I couldn't help it. I'm sorry, guys. I no. try not to get political, but I... Yeah. And I think the one of the, the best things about this film is um, that you get the introduction of a lot of new models. You get the Excelsior, which is amazing. Mm. You get the above class, which is pretty cool. You get the space dance, which is great. But, but most of all, you get the Klingon Bird of Prey, which is, aside from the Enterprise, is probably my favourite ship in all of Star Trek. It's just a brilliant design. And by the way, if you watch those original films, almost every time they're at space dock, there's one guy who's outside the ship when it takes off every time, who's just there. And it looks like they've left him behind, like it's some practical joke on him. It's like, oh, um, uh, John, could you just go out and see what's happening there on the, uh, you know, the, you know that bit of the space dog was just by themselves. Just check that out for a second. And they quickly power off before he can get back in. Yeah, that's his job. He's, he's, probably, he's probably sort of an attaché from a planet that they don't really like. So they're like, give him the job of standing outside. Yeah. And like, it's by the third time they're doing, they're going, no, look, we promise we'll let you back in this time. We just really, we need you to check this in. Please yeah, do. Just, Are you going to really let me, in? of course we're going to let you back in this just, time. It wouldn't be funny a third time. Quick, he's out. Go, 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 go. Yeah. No, no, honestly. The Admiral lost his contact lens when he was spacewalking. We need you to go and find it. And that's his whole job. Oh, someone's just put in the uh, group chat, Shared Universe Radio. Anton de Kuns? De Kans? The who what? The, the guy who I was mentioning from Eurotrust. Anton de, ah. <laughs> de Kans? That doesn't sound quite right, but I'm probably mispronouncing it anyway. No, he was the presenter one. No, yeah, yeah. So I think it's the other guy with a guy with blonde hair. We're trying to get. Anton presented it. I could Google it, but I'm not going to because I'm lazy and I've been up for 22 hours, so it's not going to happen. Anyway, I don't, I don't blame you. Well, I'm, I've been on radio for tw well, 21 <laughs> hours and 15 minutes. I've been awake considerably longer, so I'm not looking up. Yeah, you can be right forgiven now. for forgetting the name of a minor celebrity from 20 years ago. Yeah. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> And refusing to look it up. But I, you've mentioned the Excelsior before. I absolutely love that scene. It's where the guy who's filing his nails, then just touch a beautiful <laughs> touch. And he's going, it's like, 
Kirk, just turn around, for God's sake. It's like, uh, look, if you do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. And he's just so casual. He's so yeah, nice. That that guy he's got rights. And there's this bit where he goes, he's lost his mind. And then, the, of course, the Enterprise just warps the hell out of there and the Excelsior clanks to a halt. And you've got yeah. Scotty with just this one part going, bigger they are, the, the more they use spare parts make a difference. Yeah. But brilliantly as Paul well. And it, yes, Jean-Paul Gaultier. There you go. Thank it's you. completely <laughs> anachronous. But when the Excelsior conks out, you get this sound like a car stalling. It's like... Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> And, you know, it's fantastic, but uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but there you go. Um, it makes no scene, sense, but it's beautifully done. It's great. The scene you mentioned there, though, where he says, Kirk, you'll never sit in the captain's chair. Again, great acting from Shatner, because you can see on his face that that bothers him. There's no question that he's not going to do what he needs to do, but you can see that that hurts for a split second. And then they go anyway, you know. And again, it's brilliant, brilliant acting from him. Be grateful if you gave the word, sir. Though that's interesting, isn't it? That Scotty's found a way of um, doing the Enterprise so that uh, you only need six people to run it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and I believe Scotty could have done that at any time. He just exactly. didn't want to seem I reckon he, he never jumps I... to the best thing he can do because he wants to look good later. Well, yeah, and well, he Scotty... says that earlier, doesn't he? Miracle at the beginning, oh, he says it, it'll take eight yeah. weeks, eight weeks I, to repair the, the Enterprise, and he goes, "But I'll have it done for you in two. I think he goes, it's how he keeps his yeah. reputation. I yeah. think it's probably more, you know, Gotti, as we know, is from Scotland. He's probably quite left-leaning in his politics. He's thinking, if I make this ship so only six people are needed, I'm going to do a lot of people out of jobs. So he's like. <laughs> No, I'm going to make it. You only actually need six people to run it. But he multiplies that by a factor of like 100 <laughs> or something. So he's got this enormous crew, which is totally unnecessary. Which is why you get a guy who can well, stand outside <laughs> waving at people. Yeah, I mean, when he says to be fair, it'll in take... The relic, in the episode Relics, Scotty makes a point of trying to teach Georgie that you must exaggerate any estimates. Yeah. You've got to at least double it. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's a sweet, sweet episode. Don't give your captain what he wants. Captains are like children. Exactly, and he's absolutely right. I love the whole thing of uh, of seeing Spock grow up before our eyes on the planet, even though, what a coincidence, he ends just as he was the same age as we last saw him. Uh, hell of a coincidence. Oh, that's the way these things work. Yeah. <laughs> it's because he used antimatter in the, the Matrix. You know, blame David Marcus for that one. Also it, matter. It is really nice that they show. It is really nice that they show a downside to doing this, thus giving giving the answer to anyone who goes, "Oh, but why wouldn't they just do that to every planet afterwards?" Well, because it doesn't work properly, and that's the beauty of it. They rush the science to get it through, and that's why the planet dies so quickly, and so thusly why they can't just do it again and again. Yeah, it's it is very well thought through. Um, speaking of David Marcus, I love the bit where the Klingons have got him locked up and Kirk comes through on the intercom and David sort of looks at Savick and gives a little smile like, oh, my dad's here, he's going to sort it all out. It's a lovely little little moment between the two characters. And and the way they play, uh, again, we go back to Christopher Lloyd, but the way they played him 
as the Klingon and they bring in those ideals of honour. So even though he wants to defeat Kirk, when he's asking him to boom down and goes, I give two minutes for you and your valiant crew, because yeah, that's which what is, Klingons uh, would do with honour. Which is a contrast as well to Khan, who said, I give 60 seconds for you and your crew. So watching the films back to back, you see a distinction between the two characters there. Yeah, it's 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 so nice and it's so true to the keeping of the Klingons. That's where I think Discovery does... I mean, I really love Discovery, but it kind of falls flat a few times. Like, the way it writes Vulcans, it doesn't stay true to the character of logic. They've always got to um, tip the wink to an emotional side in pure-blood mm. Vulcans. Like, some of the lines, like, uh, um, Sarek says, like... Uh, it's not your human heart, but your human tongue, which I fear might let you down and behave. These are not Klingon, uh, sorry, Vulcan ways of speaking. Whereas in these films, they get what drives those races and they don't seek to make them human. They just give them a set of rules to work by, which you can see humanity in. Because there are humans who are colder and more logical, like uh, Vulcans. There are humans who uh, believe in military, but also believe in honor. Which is exemplified by the Klingons. So you don't have to show every shade of humanity to bring humanity into a race. No, absolutely. And they're, they're not cliches, like you say, they're, they're sort of believable as rounded individuals in these films for the most part. Again, we won't get to Star Trek V to touch on that, but um, you know, the, the characters are believable, which is very important to create any sense of tension or excitement or anything you know krug you can see where he's coming from you he's got clear goals as to what he wants to do so it it helps to anchor the film there so this could have been just let's go find spock and with a klingon antagonist tacked on but it's not it works well as a whole Whereas, again, when you get to Star Trek V, there's a Klingon antagonist that is literally just tacked on and does nothing. And and it's just, for me, it's beautiful the way they have the... You've got the... They're playing chess almost for a while. So, like, you've got... Um, Krug takes out David. Then Kirk takes out uh, all the, the, the other Klingons using the Enterprise yeah. sacrifice to do that. So he sacrifices his whatever chess piece is relevant there, we'll say queen or king or whatever, which is the one, like whichever one he can do without, but it's a high value one. He sacrifices that to take out a load. Of, it sacrifices the queen to take out a load of his bishops. I don't know chess, all right? I'm very much bringing that. You, <laughs> you get the metaphor, basically. He yeah, uses his piece to take it. out many of his pieces. And he's just lost a very big piece of his. And so when they end up down on the planet, then they finish the chess game and then they are just duking it out. It's the end game. It's t the two kings yeah. left to, to finish the battle. And that's beautiful. And that's so well done. And the moment where you see the Enterprise go down. Oh, it's fantastic. It is heart-wrenching. And it's just a sound. It, it and when you see David. It is heart-wrenching watching the Enterprise being destroyed. But we see the Enterprise destroyed in three other movies. This is the only one where it's done for a reason and it hurts to see it destroyed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's given that that sort of uh, gravitas again, you know, it you feel the connection. It means a lot to Kirk to lose this ship, but he does it. 
as Bone says, to give them a chance to live kind of thing. Turning death into a fighting yeah. chance to live. Fighting chance to live, that's it. Can I just, sorry, can I just ask Elliot? You said three movies, so you've got this one, you've got Generations, what's the third? Star Trek Beyond. Oh yeah, I, yeah, yeah. That annoyed me because it brings the timeline so much forward that they go to A. Yeah, Yeah, well. Anyway, that's another story. Yeah, no, No, you're correct, you're correct. Generations, generations was lazy. And I like the fact that you got to see a detailed slow. Able to do that. Well, it's the fact that it takes it time to crash the ships. You see it almost forensically crashed, which I kind of like. But anyway, we'll, yeah, that's for another yeah, time. Well, maybe we'll get to that one day. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think three is unfortunately a little bit underrated by many because it is that bridging film. It is that middle film. It doesn't have an antagonist that stands out as much as can. It's not as funny as far, but I do think it is a legitimately very, very good film. And it certainly, people talk about the odd number curse. It it doesn't, for me, fall in the same camp. No, no. It's, I, I, again, I think you're right. That it does get very underrated and it's, it's some meat in the sandwich. There's nothing wrong with that. Yes, it, 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 no one's denying it doesn't stand on its own, but that isn't necessarily a disqualifier. No. I mean, it's interesting that Star Trek on TV for the original series, for Next Gen, really until we got to the later years of DS9, stayed well away from serialised storytelling, which on TV is a medium that utilises that. But then they get to films and go, you know what, we're going to have four two, three, and four are just going to run on from each other and we're going to have little previously on recaps and the cinema audience can put up with it. You know, it's uh, an interesting decision, but it's one that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll have a few years between each movie, but in real time it'll be a few weeks. Well, shall we move on to the next film? Has anyone got anything well, Anything I, else to say? Just a wonderful wrap-up, really, when they've got... Um... Spock revives and he, he, he looks so puzzled at Kirk and yeah. then just a spark of memory comes back. I have been and always shall be your friend. The way he delivers it, it's so full of heart and emotion, but yeah. it's the confusion in his eyes that it's like he knows he's saying something that's true somehow. Just the, le- the layers in the performance. He knows he's saying, saying that something that's yeah. true. He knows he doesn't fully understand it, but he knows that it's really important to say it. And that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, he's, been, he's coming back. I like how Bones is there when they tell him how dangerous it's going to be to give his memories back. Mm. It's like, well, it's a fine time to tell me. <laughs> yeah. Classic, classic. Uh, yeah, it would have been interesting if they'd have got there and explained it to Bones that had been like, there's no way in hell I'm doing that, Jim. <laughs> that would have been it. Well, I love the way he says yes, and then he just goes separately. It's like pick a damn fine tone wasp. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's just yeah. so pitch perfect. <laughs> but again, that's just Bones being gruff on the exterior, yeah. isn't it? There's no question whatsoever that he's going to do that for Spark. And, uh, oh, absolutely. and yeah. I, I just like to give a, a nod to Mark Leonard as Sarek, who, uh, yes. who in this film, I believe, as well as the next one, says that he, his, his uh, logic is clouded when it comes to his son. And that's just beautiful yes. because it doesn't make him any less Vulcan. It doesn't sell out on who the character is, 
but it does bring in that shade when it's a family member. Maybe there is a slight chink in the logic armor. It doesn't mean that he's been less logical, and it does that much better than they do. As I say, for instance, in Discovery, I feel like they don't get that line quite right. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, I think they're doing quite a good job with Sarek in Discovery, but that's uh, He's too much a separate issue. Anyway, Maybe yeah, so. you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Um, so moving on then, the year is 2286, but also 1986. Kirk is on trial, Spock has a new lease of life, and Chekhov is an admiral. <laughs> it's Star Trek for The Voyage Home. Hello, everybody. Can you hear us? I can. Hi, how are there you? There we go. Yay. Hi, Nicola. Hello, how are I, you? I did say live radio. <laughs> there oh, we go. God. Exactly, we're bound to have some technical technical issues. Oh, Brill, so where are we up to, did you say? Which we, we've, we've, we've covered one, two, three. and three. Yeah. Which shows how overly ambitious we were trying to think we could do them all in two I, hours. Well, thirteen. <laughs> I know. Well, I said, I said to um, Squee, I said, um, I'm going to listen from afar, but these guys know way beyond what I could ever add intelligent conversation to. <laughs> um, so I said, I'll come in for the last half hour because I just love Star Trek. And uh, he said, that's all right because you'll probably catch the last three films. <laughs> no, not so much. Well, let's be fair with when you get to the fourth film, you've come in on a brilliant one if you don't follow Absolutely. Star Trek massively. Because Paramount have said themselves, even if the Voyage Home wasn't a Star Trek movie, they would have still made it. Yes. Yeah, it, it is. It, I think more than perhaps any of the other ones, this one appeals to the mass audience because the the basic concept of people from the future coming back to the past and not fitting in properly. That's just a great, great concept. It's always going to work. It's always going to be funny. The bonus is that we get to do it in this film with such a great set of characters who know each other so well by this point and the chemistry between the actors is so good that it's just absolutely joyous to watch it play out you know it's uh well we've been working together for 20 years by this point absolutely and you know they there are stories of backstage problems with them but the camaraderie between them comes through absolutely on on screen i think yes yeah i must admit that one for me was a great one as well um uh, i i actually really like leonard nimoy in this one yeah, he's great because he's. He, he dives in with a well. Did he actually do that then, Nimai? Yeah, well, whether he did do it or not, but in my head he did. He did it with a robotic <laughs> well. Did he? Was it a robotic well? Oh, right, he dived in with a robotic well. But the fact that uh, he was in there talking to the well. Oh, it's great. Oh, I yeah, love it. and and the some of the because Spock's sort of not quite got back to his normal self in this one. So some of the things that that character is able to say, just some of the weird sort of non sequiturs he comes out with. And, you know, like when she says, you know, Gracie's pregnant. So well, nobody knows that Gracie does. You know, it's yeah. just fantastic. <laughs> it was, it was some of the humor. dialogue. It was humor and from Spock. <laughs> what does Spock have against Italian food? 
because there's that bit in the car where she says, do you like Italian food? Spock's like, no, no. And he's like, yes, you do. Yeah. I love Italian, and so do you. <laughs> what, what has happened to Spock that he hates Italian food to that extent? See, I, I, think he was getting, I think he was trying to get away from uh, them interacting with her too much. Oh, Maybe so. Yeah. Pizzas are not logical. Yeah. But I Putting like the... meat and cheese on bread oh. is not logical. I like the bit after that, though, where they drop him off at the park, and it's like, yeah, he's just going to stay there for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't but, you think these people are weird? <laughs> he kind of looks like the, the sort of guy who would, who could just hang around in the park for a few hours. Well, taken too much LDS in the sixties. Yeah. It. It's all these moments of comedy throughout the pepper throughout the film. I'm back, by the way. Oh, I I love it when they have. Hi, welcome back. It's just little things like when he's going. It's like, uh, well, you're not exactly going to blend in. He just takes the edge of his robe. Just tears a strip off and just puts his head right on top of his ears. And Kirk's like, perfect. <laughs> Nailed it. That's it. Brilliant disguise, Spock. Yeah. You've done this before, I see. But, well, he had in um, the, uh, uh, City on the Edge of Forever. Uh, City on the Edge of Forever. Yes, with the hat. Yeah. yeah, in that one, somewhat problematically, they told the the people of the time that he was Chinese and had caught his ears in a mechanical rice picker. <laughs> I don't know what, what you mean. How's that problematic? I think that's very culturally sensitive. No, absolutely. Sorry, I, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> but no, the, the fish out of water stuff is just great. Like, I love the bit where uh, they're interrogating Chekhov and he's, uh, you know, we'll take it from the top. The top of what? You know, that whole... <laughs> That whole exchange is brilliant. What's your name? I do not know your name. Yeah. <laughs> you play games and you're through. I am. May I go now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, That's like, I think there's some people that get a bit po-faced that it's like, oh, but it's not as, like, too so serious and so cool, which it is, and that's mm. great. But it's nothing wrong with having a light-hearted, fun one. And yeah, it works. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's absolutely. not trying to be anything but what it is. And that's yeah. good. Uh, yeah. And it, especially after the three that we've had have all been very serious. Mm. And it's nice to have a bit of a breather and have something that is just fun and shows these people enjoying each other's company. And I love the way in this one everybody's got something to do. Because that that's sometimes a problem in the other yeah. films like... In three, a horror just gets left behind on space dock and then turns up again at All the end. All she has to do is beam them to the, All she has to yeah. do is beam them to the Enterprise. Whereas in this one, it's it's the script is very clever how they how they break up break up the story because they go okay, teams. we we've got three problems we need to solve. We've got three teams of thing, and then we can jump between those three different sort of submissions. And by the end, we need to know how Spock feels. Exactly, yeah, and yeah, you get that lovely scene finally, sort of with Spock and Sarek, which yeah, that's quite ambitious for a big budget film um, to tie up a story arc that began in an episode of television, you know, fifteen twenty years before. But they've earned doing that in this film, and it the scene with them is understandable to an audience who are just watching this film. But for Star Trek fans, it means so much more, you know, and it's it's very, very well done. I mean, that bit at the end, I you know, 
we're going to jump all over the place on this one, I can tell. But I just love that bit at the end. Yeah, I mean, this is one where I really did tear up. Like, there was a few moments watching them back where Nicole testified where I teared up a bit. And it was that bit, like, tell Mother, I feel fine. It's just the way he delivers it. It's so simple. It's not overblown. Yeah. But it's beautiful. And it just, it, it, it is so emotional. Yeah. He's accepted that part of himself that he um, couldn't before. And for me, it's the fact that Sarek finally admits he was wrong or as close to admitting he was wrong as he will do. Perhaps I, you know, was wrong in what I said. Yeah, yeah I mean, so, God, and... Basically, that's continuing a conversation they had uh, however many years ago. Yeah, in Journey to Babel, you know, that's, that's what I mean by for long-term fans, that moment has much more tied... significance. Yeah. No, and they've tied up a story arc from 20 years previous. Yeah, that's great. And uh, it's all the nice little elements as well. So you've got this bit where uh, Kirk sells the glasses, which got <laughs> uh, damaged in the last movie. And... Uh, <laughs> One they a uh, gift from uh, Dr. Murray, and they will be again. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I'll give you a hundred dollars. Is that a lot? <laughs> that, guy, <laughs> that guy's reaction was beautiful. Did I? Am I remembering? Have I just made this up? That the guy uh, I think had ad libbed that response. I, it may well have done. I mean, it would. Yeah. It would, I know there was a lot of fans. I think the guy they just gave you know was that a lot. I think it was meant to be, he said, is that a lot? And then he just went, uh, yeah, or something like that. But it's just, yeah. Mm, and that big over-the-top arm gesture yeah. is just beautiful. <laughs> just wonderful little character performance there by that guy. There is, yeah. And, and is it true that they, when they had them going around like asking for the nuclear vessels and things, that they did that to unsuspecting members of the public and that some of the yeah, reactions... Yeah, um, Chekhov is actually talking to a real police officer. He right. actually stopped a real police officer there in the film team asking how to get find the nuclear vessels. That police officer's blank reaction is, is isn't staged. Yeah. No, it's it's an actual police officer he's walked up to. Yeah. But the fact that he just responds by like the way the police officer chooses to respond is like, I'm just gonna blankly stare at him. <laughs> he's lucky he didn't but get all nicked. that, that entire that entire scene where they're talking to people in the street is all real people. None of them people are actors. They were actually stopping real people in the streets. Wow. Uh, including the, oh, I'll meet her. I don't know if I know the answer to that. It was she. Yeah, 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 the, whole, yeah the whole thing. Oh, God bless the people of San Francisco in the 80s. I <laughs> what weirdos. I love them. I don't want to. It's a great way to get their natural reactions, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but he could have projected that, and the way they react to it is so spot on as well. It's like that's what I said in Alameda. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to cast a pall on this film. Is I, I do think it's a wonderful film, but I had a bit of an issue with um, the character of Gillian this time through. I don't think she's the strongest actress, bless her. Well, oh, that's why I spoke didn't want to go for Italian with her. Uh, yeah. She wasn't his type. Well, he probably didn't want to go for Italian with her because she starts crying at dinner talking about whales. It's just, oh, my God. Well, also, it's uh, what someone else pointed out to me, which I've never thought about, and it just shows you how kind of this is so insidious in the culture, is when you've got this woman who's half uh, Kirk's age. I didn't even think about it. But at some point I was going, yeah, she is really, isn't she? Yeah, she's so she much really younger than is, him. But... 
you know, this oh, is yeah, Captain yeah. Kirk we're talking about. Uh, so. yeah. yeah, but we've been so trained not to notice that. But if it was the other way around, we'd really notice it. Yeah, it gets we even more cringeworthy in Star Trek Six. Oh, God, yes. Oh, but, yeah. but at least she's a shapeshifter. You can get around <laughs> it. Whereas if yeah. you go back to Star Trek Two, you have an age-appropriate, not necessarily love interest, but a former love interest in Carol Marcus. Yeah. And she is age-appropriate. And again, it's acknowledging Kirk's age, but we're sort of starting to slide back to the, you know, Kirk, the womanizer kind of thing with this one. Though, to be fair, even though he does take her out for a meal, she takes him out, so we don't have money. Um, <laughs> yeah. We don't know that anything came of that. At the end, she just goes off to a ship and he says, oh, I don't have your telephone number. And she's like, it's fine, I'll call you, son, don't worry. <laughs> So, I'd be very surprised. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, uh, there's the other bit which I, I I don't know if you've already covered, but I did love the bit with Scotty and with Bones when they're going to the plastic no, not perspex. No. Oh my yeah. god, that's that has to be like one of my favourite scenes. It's just the whole thing of like, um, it's like, oh, I don't know anything about it. I find that hard to believe. No, 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 um, uh, Professor. Um, Scott, Professor they're, Scott, they're they're, they're going to uh, show us around. Oh, are they? How nice! <laughs> and it's just the way he yeah. switches. He's so mechanical. He's going. Can my assistant join us? Don't build up your part. And he, yeah. And then he goes and he's and the bit of the computer when he picks up. You know, he goes, um, "Hello, computer." Yeah. And then uh, Bruce yeah. goes, "Ah, oh, I see." And picks up a mouse and hands it to him. And goes, oh, "Hello, computer." Just type on the keyboard. And oh, how quaint. <laughs> 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 and how do we know he great, didn't invent great, the damn thing? Yeah. Uh, just, just glorious. Every, every single line is pitch perfect. Yeah, it's brilliant. Oh. One thing though, that's all the stuff you remember, as we've shown that we we've talked all about the the flashback sequence. But if you look at the start of the film, this, the opening is not too dissimilar to the motion picture. You have this huge unknown entity approaching Earth, causing yeah. a load of havoc as it goes. Um, and then we cut to all the scenes on Vulcan, and it's quite a long time before we go back in time, which I think, again, going back to this idea of these films being almost serialised, like, it's quite a big ask for an audience who have maybe seen the trailers, they want to come and see this fish-out-of-water comedy, and you get this... There's fish-out-of-water on purpose there. On the Wales movie, on the movie of the Wales, you say <laughs> yeah. fish-out-of-water. Come on, sir. Yeah, well, that's exactly, James. You should have thought of that. Mammals well, out of water. It's, yeah. it's because if I talk about whales too much, I start crying just like Gillian, so... Um, and, and scream. But, yeah, you know, you've got this 20 minutes or so. Sorry, don't want to blubber. It must be quite confusing, certainly for people who've not watched the first couple, but, you know, for not watched two and three, but yet this one was a crossover hit. It was a breakout hit. Yeah. And everybody seems to love it, you know. I find it interesting that the the opening is very sort of steeped in Star Trek lore and steeped in the last couple of films, but yet it's still crossed over to that extent. Well, guys, I mean, have we pretty much uh, finished with Star Trek 4? Can then? I ask one question, oh, sorry, please. actually? And I may get shot for this. Uh, I hope I don't. Um, so do we actually know what the whales said? Because <laughs> that's said, one of the essentials of it. But I'm thinking, 
We never really know what was said. <laughs> they said so long and thanks well, for all the fish. <laughs> I do wonder about that because what if you'd think the whales are dobbers in like, you know, the, the probe's going to get there and say, are all the whales okay? And then two would say, well, no, actually, they've had to bring us back from the past yeah. because they've killed us all. Yeah, we were in you know, attack. But... Well, even if they cognizize that, otherwise it's like, help, these guys are kidnapping us. Where the hell are we? Yeah, and she's pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I reckon when Spock... Oh, well, Spock asked them first, didn't he? Oh, oh yeah, you Spock did ask them in a mind meld. All I reckon right, when geez. he mind melded with them, he said, look... You two are in serious trouble if you don't tell this probe to go away. Tell them that we've been looking after you and we might let you have the open sea to yourself. Otherwise, I'm sending you them hunters and that's your lot. I've never heard it said so northern. We're sending you to talk hunters if you don't. <laughs> oh, that's cleared that up for me. Thank you. There is um, a novel called Probe. Which yes. sounds like it should probably be in a different collection of books, but never mind. About other aliens. Uh, and apparently that explains what the probe is and what it was up to. And it's got, apparently it's got chapters written from George and Gracie's point of view and all sorts of stuff. So Brilliant. I've I never read it, a, Oh, I don't know. That's yeah. worth a read, I think. I think I might have heard the audio book, but I don't remember chapters from George and Gracie's perspective. Maybe that was cut out of that uh, version, but I don't really remember so. a thing we of it. We were floating around in a tank and then some... Weirdo with a band head thing came in, and that's kind yeah. of what you'd see it as, isn't it? You are not going to believe the couple of days we've had. We started <laughs> off with this really weepy woman. Yeah. Then this guy with pointed ears turned up for a swim. Then we ended up in a spaceship, and this guy with a wig came and opened yeah. the door and let us out. You know. And then to top it off, we've been using protection, and Gracie's now pregnant. Yeah, it's nothing to do with George. Yeah, yeah. And, and where's she been? And to be honest, you, as much as I want to rip on the guy with a wig, that toupee tape must be bloody good that he's wearing. It, absolutely, it's some it of the best awesome. big acting you will ever see. Well, guys, we've got about thirteen minutes left. Are we? Are we going to Star Trek Four? Because I've just got one thing to wrap it up with. Yeah, sure. I think. I think yeah. Star Trek Falls one of them. There's less to say about it because it's so good. It's, it's, just, it's just fun. It, it we all enjoy it. It, yeah. it doesn't have so much those quote lines ones. from it for hours, but um, yeah, I'm I'm done for now. Well, shall we do a quick round yeah. table? And it doesn't have to be one of the films we've discussed. What are each of your favourite Star Trek films? You you can only pick one, yeah. and it's really difficult. But pick one, the one favourite. Oh, I'll, I'll I'll pass for now. I'll let someone else go first. Um, my absolute favourite. There's two of them that I watch over and over and over, more than you watching yours over and over. And it's Wolf of Khan and First Contact. Oh, it's yeah. hard to pick between the two of them. Both strong entries, uh, Nicola. Yeah, I am actually gonna go with the Wrath of Khan. Um, but I, I, I do actually like the newer, the first, um, newer Star Trek as well. Star Trek, uh, yeah, 2009. The, yeah, so I quite like, but Wrath of Khan, I'm definitely going I, I think 2009's a really nice sort of iconic film. It kind of brings in all the elements uh, from yeah. other places in Star Trek. Yeah, it brings it with one place. It's a fantastic film. It's yeah. wonderful. But for me, the two I come back, I, oh yeah, no, Star Trek 2009 is pretty strong. But the two which it usually comes down to for me is either Wrath of Khan again, yeah. that's obviously uh, 
a good favourite of ours. And um, Star Trek VI, the, the, the Undiscovered Country. There is just, again, there's so many wonderful moments. There's so much pathos which only can be built from the other ones. And I think as wonderful as Wrath of Khan is, I just fear towards the Undiscovered Country because it's got those Shakespearean elements and I'm a big uh, Shakespeare geek. Yeah, I, don't, I, I can see the argument for Undiscovered Country. Definitely, there's such a poignancy to it and it's such a good send-off to the crew. Um, which is my way of cleverly avoiding having to answer the question. Um, oh God, it's it's either it's either Wrath of Khan, Undiscovered Country, or two thousand nine. If I had to pick one right now, this minute, I would probably go with Undiscovered Country, but that may well change next time I watch them. So it's good that. Out of 13 films, there's only really Star Trek V that I wouldn't jump at the chance of watching again. But having said that, you know, there's a lot of films in the world that are better than Star Trek V. Yeah. Uh, Star Trek V can be fixed. But I think I've I've seen that film more times than anyone really should have done. <laughs> so, <laughs> so once then... Yeah, so I watched half of it. <laughs> Retrek has been a lot of fun, guys. Uh, it was really a pleasure to meet you guys earlier in the year mm, at um, yeah. Sci-Fi Weekender in the City. And I loved all your outfits from the Sci-Fi Weekender. <laughs> they were amazing. Loved them. We're going to have to make sure next time we meet you, me and uh, Nicola are suitably attired in some Trek Oh, uniforms. absolutely, yes. Yes, I'm going for the uh, the 1960s version, the, uh, the dress. Uhura. Uhura dress, yes. Oh, I was going to go with that, but never mind. Because uh, um, she's okay. a her at heart. I know you'll look better, but I'll I've just got... have to live with it. <laughs> I've got at least one new, new one new costume for October next year. Oh, brilliant. Oh, do we have any teasers, or are you going to save it? It's for the pool party if it happens. Okay. Hey, there's a pool party. Apparently <laughs> so. Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Okay. <laughs> I was just going to say to James, have you enjoyed this tonight being the uh, host of Retrek? Is it something you think you might take the baton on of? Absolutely. We'd, we'd love to, I would love to carry on talking about Star Trek because, um, We've you know, got nine more movies to do. <laughs> nine more movies and 700 odd episodes. There's always a lot of material to be going through. Well, if you ever need anyone. Yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, oh, we will definitely absolutely. have to sort something out, but. I'll let you catch up on your sleep before we <laughs> discuss yeah. it too much, Dan. <laughs> Thank you very much, then, for, for listening to us. It turns out that we didn't pass the Kobayashi and Maru test of discussing all 13 films. But I think we made a valiant effort. I think four's not too bad, and it's a good place to leave it on the, the voyage home. Hopefully we'll reconvene at some point to discuss the rest of them. And as it says at the end of Star Trek 3, and the adventure continues. Mm. <laughs> Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. Kapla! Kapla!